Today's reading is going to be in Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? And cry, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, and wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. This is the word of the Lord. I remember the first time I had words with at 16, um, I found out after a long journey of abandonment and destructive cycles that finally my parents' divorce was going to be final. I was leaving a church gathering. Um, it was late, and I pulled into an empty factory parking lot, of all places. Um, and I was frustrated, and I got out of the car, and I was crying because I was confused. I was yelling because I was angry, and I shouted out to God, you, you said you were good. You said you were good, and you let this happen. And between two people who say they're Christians, my God, aren't you better than this? What are you doing? And I found myself at the end of like an hour um, throwing stones at nothing, um, looking up in the stars, finally hoarse and alone, on my knees, holding on barely to God, and maybe looking back now, more honestly, him holding on to me, asking the question, my God, what are you doing? Aren't you better than this? When life just doesn't make sense, that question seems to stream out of our mouth. You know, I eventually, over the years, found myself having plenty of times going to prayer so that I can have words with God. As a pastor sitting across the table of friends, family, fellow church members who'd lost jobs, wrecked their marriages, or grieved over loved ones. If I look across our nation, I see how individual actions take hold in community tra uh, traditions and then eventually these lasting legacies of destruction. We already lamented some of them this morning. For example, the spirituals we sang sing of a time not too far in our distant past where our brothers and sisters were enslaved because of the color of their skin. And we saw how this generational implications of systemic racism even impacted Kansas City for generations. And it showed itself in Jim Crow and racialized property deeds, and redlining, and various other ways. And then throughout history, it morphed again to be a new Jim Crow, where we now see that there's a pipeline for many men of color directly to penitentiaries. I'm perplexed by the complexity of this issue. And I feel disgusted at my own contribution, and I think, my God, aren't you better than this? If we step one... If we step back one more time and think of and look across the world as a whole, what we find is that more people are in slavery now in this period of history than any other time. Actually, in a, a staggering 27 
million people. To give us a glimpse, we're talking at least 100,000 slaves toiling in brick-making kilns in Pakistan. In India, desperate parents sell their children to make carpets. In Uganda, the Lord's Resistance Army kidnaps children to make them into soldiers or sex slaves. Gangs in Eastern Europe and Latin America force women into prostitution. And more than 10,000 people in this country, not just outside, but in this country, are forced into brothels, forms, and slave labor. I've sat at my desk. I've stared into my coffee. I've cried in prayer. My God, aren't you better than this? And there are plenty of times in life where life just doesn't make sense, right? And if we believe in a good God and an all-powerful God, we'll find ourselves asking this question at some point. My God, aren't you better than this? If you're anything like me, you can find this question extremely authentic and freeing, but also a little too audacious to be comfortable, right? Now, here's the thing. We aren't the first people to ask this question in human history. And over the next three weeks, we're going to actually learn and listen to one of God's spokesmen on how to navigate questioning God and still trusting him when life doesn't make sense. Because it happens more often than any of us care to admit. It all starts with something God shows a guy named Habakkuk, right? Um, from, from what you've just heard, you probably can think that Habakkuk was this cantankerous old man. <laughs> uh, does anyone know a modern-day person named Habakkuk? Yeah, right, no one. I mean, not too many parents are rushing to go put Habakkuk on the birth certificate. Um, but I think Habakkuk gets a bad rap. You see, he's more than just a nag. Instead, there's something astounding about Habakkuk in that he really knows God. I mean, he really knows him, and he knows God as real and as a God who engages in his world in really real ways. He's not limited to some faraway existence up in space. He's not just a good idea that brings us comfort in tough times. But he's real, and he engages in justice. He's much more like the wind on a fall day that blows in, almost imperceptible to the naked eye, and he changes things. And that's who our God is. That's the God Habakkuk holds on to. And you can almost imagine Habakkuk. Um, he was a musician prophet um, who would walk around the temple court in Jerusalem. And you can imagine him riding these ballads of longing for God to blow in with a fresh wind and a fresh fire amongst his people hungry to see the real God work in real ways in the midst of brokenness. To give us context, this is about 600 years before Jesus is born. So this is a while ago. And the glorious nation of Israel has already broken up into two kingdoms over 300 years ago. And the southern kingdom of Judah is who Habakkuk is talking to. That's Jerusalem is the capital and it's in decline. And the winds of geopolitical change are blowing throughout the nations of the Middle East. You see, Josiah, Judah's last good king, if you look throughout the pages of Scripture, he dies in battle against the Egyptians in 609 B.C. Then Pharaoh Necho, so Pharaoh being from Egypt, 
He sets up Jehoiakim, Josiah's son, to be this puppet king of Jerusalem and Judah. But he's nothing like his dad. You see, Josiah was a good king. Jehoiakim, he's corrupt. He's unjust. He's self-serving. We see across the pages of scripture from Jeremiah, from Zephaniah. These are Habakkuk's contemporaries. That, that, that uh, Jehoiakim actually kills the innocent. He sacrifices newborn babes into the hot hands of idols. He oppresses the weak. He imprisons the poor. If he pays them any wage whatsoever, it's barely meager enough to survive. And he uses the priests now at this point to further his power. Judah, as you get this full picture, has abandoned God. And it's here Habakkuk complains to God. Yes, he complains to God. And there are three guiding lessons we're going to learn from his complaint. My God, why aren't you better than this? Well, sometimes, sometimes anger is the right response. My God, aren't you better than this? Well, sometimes there isn't a satisfying answer. My God, aren't you better than this? And sometimes the best thing we can do is wait, is wait. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Habakkuk? If you can't find it, don't try to be a hero. Um, Look it up in the table of contents. If you are using one of our community Bibles, you get an especially helpful cheat. It's on page 508. So there you go. Um, And when you get to the passage, right from the get-go, we step into a conversation between God and his prophet. And Habakkuk has words with God. Since we've already heard this passage read, verses 1 through 4, let me paraphrase just a little bit. God, how long do I have to cry out to you and you ignore me? How many times do I need to point out the violence around me and my nation to you and you still do nothing? Your law is dead. Justice is nowhere to be found. Good people, the vulnerable, your people are oppressed and murdered by self-serving leaders. My God, aren't you better than this? How long will you sit on your hands and do nothing? It's pretty intense. And it's amazing that this passage is in our Bibles, right? It's here we begin to see that sometimes anger is the right response. No matter what you think of the Bible, you have to hand it to the Bible that it's honest and it's raw. Actually, scholars have noticed when they compare Scripture over against other writings in ancient Near Eastern culture that Scripture is the most raw and audacious language that we can find spoken to a deity. Yeah, that's the beauty of our Bible, raw, honest. And if you don't believe me, I'd encourage you to check out for yourselves the Psalms, Job, a book called Lamentations. That's a heavy one. And even look into the Gospels where Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is wrestling, when Jesus on the cross is crying out. The Bible doesn't pull any punches, even when those punches are directed at God. It's raw. It's heavy. I want you to think about this too. No matter where you stand, every religion, everyone who tries to make sense of the world in which we live, they wrestle through the question of suffering and injustice. And Habakkuk, he knows his Bible. He knows what the writers of Scripture have highlighted about the history of our world. He knows the Bible says God created a perfect world without suffering, without sin, without injustice. And yet, 
when we broke away from God, everything else broke with it. But even still, even in the midst of the muck and the mess, Habakkuk knows that God is real and he's still engaged in his world. He hasn't given up. You see, Yahweh, the Lord that we see in all caps here, is the one who redeemed a whole nation from slavery in Egypt centuries before this. Remember, Yahweh, the Lord, is the one who's worked to free the oppressed and is sided with the vulnerable. Remember, he's the Lord who has promised to be for his people. Remember, and Habakkuk remembers, even in the midst of all of this injustice. But there are still tons of questions we have, right? I mean, look, why do bad things continue to happen if God's engaged in a broken world? How long will things be broken? To what extent must the suffering occur? And the writers of Scripture, they don't give us a systematic answer to that question. They just assume that our world is spoiled with sin and is broken. Does that answer every question? Of course not. But what is so helpful about the pages of Scripture is that we're given language and even given freedom to come before God with the deepest of complaints and say him to his face. Look, we find these complaints, these laments, as Scripture calls them, on the lips of the psalmist, on the lips of the prophets, and on the lips specifically of Habakkuk, right here. The biblical word, like I said, is lament. And it's in these laments throughout the Bible that we bring our complaints, not just to God, but to his very face. And he invites it. I mean, I challenge you to accuse God of anything that you can't find someone already in the Bible accusing him of. God is strong enough to receive our anger. He's actually more powerful. He's not super moody and going to say, I can't believe you'd say that about me. He's actually really emotionally stable. Whoa. And he's so assured that he let these words remain in his scriptures for us. For us. You see, sometimes anger is the right response, which, if true, we have to ask ourselves as, as you look at your life and we look at the brokenness of this world, are you getting angry? You heard me right. Are you getting angry? I know we all have busy lives, and some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, are just trying to survive the week, right? Well, so was everybody in Judah at that time. Their economic situation isn't all that much different. It's people trying to make it through the week. We're not so special to think that we're exempt from thoughtful and reflective living. As followers of Jesus, it's a special call, even more so for us. See, what Habakkuk is handed down in chapter 1, verse 1, is an oracle. And that's what he's handed down to us. It's a gift that keeps on giving, yeah? Um, and actually, the word oracle also means burden, He's given something really heavy, and it's going to be a little heavy this morning as we wrestle through this message that's also to us. So how do we get angry at injustice like Habakkuk does, but do so now in our world? Well, here are two helpful next steps. I couldn't just ask us, are we getting angry without some helpful next steps? First, we need to ask. Ask the deep and the tough questions. Dig under the surface of everyday life, and you'll find a world of issues. 
For example, where, how, why, and by whom were your clothes sewn, your coffee and your tomatoes grown? How are communities being planned in our city? How are resources being divvied out? How are the vulnerable being looked after or looked over? It's as simple and as complex as starting there. Ask, dig, wrestle, think. Then we need to listen. Listen to who isn't mentioned in the news. And I think what's really helpful is, is for you to engage our partners. Mission Adelante, who are listening and engaging the stories of the vulnerable. Kansas City Rescue Mission. The Hope Center. Those are just a couple of our partners who are listening to these voices of those who are many times oppressed and repressed. The immigrants, refugees, homeless, the disenfranchised, and the orphan. Those who experience in a very real way, the complicity of our nation in cycles of destruction outside and sometimes cycles of avoidance inside. Don't jump to conclusions as you listen, but listen, listen. The reality, when we come to Habakkuk in the context of Judah, is that there were plenty of people who thought Judah was just fine. It's going okay You know who isn't angry in our passage? It's those complicit in violence. Those who contribute to oppression. Those who are living in privilege off the backs of people and they may not even realize it. Those who couldn't care less whether God shows up or not. But God's prophet, the one who knows God for who he is and sees the world through the lens of God's purposes, he's angry. And he comes to a God who's big enough to wrestle through his anger with him. Habakkuk laments and God takes it. Sometimes anger is the right response. Are you getting angry? My God, aren't you better than this? Okay, so that was really heavy. Um, There's no doubt about it. Um, It feels very burdensome, so the oracle is doing its job. Um, But as we read on, What we see is that God comes and he carries Habakkuk's burden. Not quite, actually. Um, We're not done yet. Habakkuk is raw. My God, I thought you were better than this. And then God answers. Look with me at verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. That's God's answer. And we're like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about, God. Bring it on. What do you got? What do you got? And we usually stop there after talking about a missions trip or something. But we have to keep reading. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. You know, some of your translations say the Babylonians. It's the same name or the same people, just a different name. And since we don't live in Habakkuk's time period, we're scratching our head. What's the big deal with the Chaldeans? Well, God, he paints a picture for us. He describes them, as you read through chapter 1, as bitter, as hasty, as violent, as dreaded, as fearsome, horses swifter than leopards and more ferocious than wolves. And then he ends it all by talking about their arrogance, their violence, their oppression, their twisting of justice for their own might, which is their God. And in verse 11, then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men, whose own might is their God. So in other words, 
Habakkuk, I've got this covered. Um, I'm bigger than Judah, and I'm working through people and other peoples and other nations. Surprise. And I'm going to judge the wicked in in Judah by sending Babylon to do my work. Babylon is my servant. A people who would fillet anybody they got their hands on, rape and pillage the communities they conquered, things that I can't speak about without my stomach turning, they're God's answer. This is what God's doing. I mean, could you imagine the shock of Habakkuk? Maybe sitting in it now. I mean, imagine the anger. What if that was the United States? Let's bring it further down. What if that was Kansas City? And God just said this about your neighbors, your family, your community. It'd be like complaining to God about a backache and you just found out you're dying from cancer. Things got worse. And what's amazing, what I love about the interchange between Habakkuk and God here is they're both raw. Neither of them sugarcoat their answers and their questions. Habakkuk comes and says, God, do you see what this, what's, what's happening? My God, aren't you better than this? And then God says, I'm going to use Babylon. And what we find is that even in this wrestling, as Habakkuk digs deeper, we come to learn that sometimes there isn't a satisfying answer. Sometimes there isn't a satisfying answer. Life isn't that neat, right? God permits all kinds of terrible things to happen. And I couldn't tell you why. I could tell you that somehow God is working for this overarching plan for the good of all of humanity. And he actually uses some of the worst atrocities for his purposes. But even when I say that, for some of you, that may cause a resentment toward God or even an utter rejection of God. How could he do that? I get it. And I can't answer it. (laughs) But even still... We want God to lay out all of his cards, don't we? We want him to give us all the answers, but when Habakkuk gets the answer, you thought he was mad before. Look at chapter chapter 1, verse 13. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? just bumped up a notch. We all want answers. Habakkuk wants answers. We demand answers of God. But in the strange chance that God does give us an answer, that doesn't mean it's going to solve the ache. Why? Because there's certain heartache that can only be solved by undoing what's been done. There's certain heartache that can only be solved by unsaying what's been said. And we want God to go back when God's always bringing us forward. You see, the answers we provide are usually in categories of the past. Whereas God is free and he longs, he longs to bring us into his new categories for the future. God's working further than we want to go, wider than we could have ever imagined with people that we've often thought written off. That's who God is. And some of you this morning, we're, we're unwilling to be honest with God about our anger or unwilling to listen to what God has to say because you're holding tighter to your answers 
When you come in prayer, your predetermined positive outcomes rather than your God who comes with his own predetermined positive outcomes. Are you holding tighter to your answers or your God? We've always needed more than answers. We need more than explanations. What we need is for God to come, and that's what Habakkuk is longing for, to break up our categories. Look, if you go to verse 12, instantly after God finishes his answer to Habakkuk, look at what Habakkuk calls God. First, he says, are you from everlasting? Verse 12, O Lord, my God. And then further down, O Lord. This Lord in all caps is God's personal name. It's tied up with all of God's redemptive acts in history. You're a God of good character, of redeeming, of of long and steadfast love for his people. And then he goes even further. It becomes really emphatic. Oh Lord, my God, my Holy One. And then he even goes so far as to call God rock. That doesn't mean he's rocking. It means if you look across the, the Psalms, many times the psalmists use this to highlight God as a refuge, one we hide in, one who is secure. He's heard this atrocity that Babylon is going to destroy Judah. And instead of distancing himself, he pulls God in closer. Lord, Yahweh, my God, my Holy One, my rock, I won't give up. There's more here. And I think we begin to understand what Habakkuk's name really means. It means embrace. And it starts to make sense, doesn't it? Because rather than distancing himself from God, he nestles closer and he embraces God and he holds on to him in the midst of injustice, even when he's angry at God. So what's going on here? Well, many of us, we have this misconception that that faith is always smiling. It's keeping pain locked down in ourselves or shushing others with cliches. But really, sometimes faith is angry. And to be clear, it's not an angry that runs away from God. It's not an anger that complains to others about God. But it's an anger that runs to him. It wants him closer because he's better than the answer. We don't know how yet. But he's my God, my Holy One. So I want to ask us this morning, are you holding on to your answers or your God? When God confronts you, when when life confronts you, when injustice rears its ugly head and death knocks on your family's door, when you have a Chaldean kind of moment, who are you holding on to? Real faith is sticking with God when you think you don't, or when you don't think God's answer is better, or when God doesn't answer at all. It's a way of saying, God, you're enough. If you were just here, you're enough. Nicholas Wolterstorff, he's a prestigious philosopher at Yale, and he's written plenty of books on the philosophy of justice and human rights. But when his son died a freak accident off a cliff, he writes in a lament for a son that what we need more than anything else, than any other answer, is God's presence. God's presence with us. It's the belief that when we cry, my God, aren't you better than this? That if God were just here, he would surely show us he is better than anything, than any question, than any answer even. 
my God, aren't you better than this? And sometimes there isn't going to be a satisfying answer. So are you holding on to God, your God, my God, or your answers? Well, Habakkuk, he's made his case to God and he's laid it all out, every bit of outrage, every bit of pain. And now what? Well, we could just leave it there and leave God with it. But I love how he ends his complaint in chapter 2, verse 1. It sounds actually a little antagonistic, but it's really beautiful as you dig deeper. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what God, what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint, my objection, my anger. He waits. He waits. And sometimes the best thing we can do is wait. I mean, who likes to wait, right? That's like the worst thing of a theme park, (laughs) waiting for the rides. But yet we do. Why? Because we know it's worth it. And and, and it's especially painful to think that for some of us in here, we're going to be waiting our whole lives long. So I want to ask you, what are you waiting for this morning? If you're waiting for answers, you may be waiting forever. Are you waiting for God to fix our community and our city? Or are you waiting for God to come to our community and city? Unique distinction. God's presence. If you're waiting for God, he promises to make it right in his timing, but it leaves the where, the when, the how up to God and his categories. I don't have a better answer than that, and neither does Habakkuk. And it's here that we wait. We wait with Habakkuk in rhythms of lament. What do I mean? Well, it's after all has been prayed, we wait silently. After we prayed for forgiveness for our own contribution to injustice, we silently wait. After we've prayed fervently, we silently wait. After we've prayed for understanding, sometimes the best thing we can do is silently wait for God to show up in a world of noisy injustice. Lament has place for silence. Sometimes anger is the right response. Sometimes there isn't a satisfying answer. Sometimes the best thing we can do is wait. So what are you waiting for? And when we look at Habakkuk, we find out he waits a pretty long time. 600 years, really. The Christian faith, it doesn't have a systematic answer for every question we come to the table with. But one thing we do have that no one else has is a God who isn't immune to his mysterious ways. He's not some distanced deity out in space somewhere, but he's engaged in real ways in his world. And when we get to the first century, we find that God does something absolutely astounding. If you look in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul is preaching a sermon to his fellow Jews in synagogue. And as he's talking, he actually quotes Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. Look, be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. What, are the Chaldeans coming again? You know, what's going on? Um, no. But Paul, he is pointing to a new shocking work. A work that no one had categories for again. God 
has come. And God is working in ways that no one could have foreseen. I mean, God became flesh in Jesus the Christ. They knew a Messiah was coming, but never would they have imagined it was God himself. And then he dies. The most atrocious of deaths for our sins. He dies for our contribution to injustice, our oppressive ways. And then he rise again, rose again the third day to offer everlasting life to all who believe on him and judgment for all who do not. You see, we may have words with God about how he allows injustice to accomplish purposes we don't understand, but he allowed that same injustice to come upon himself. When he became human in Jesus at the right time, when all waiting brought to its culmination, he was unjustly crucified by oppressors and prideful people by us. We may have words with God about how silent he may seem, but when God became Emmanuel, God with us, he also suffered with us and for us. And we can know that he felt the same sort of silence and abandonment because when he's on the cross, what does he cry out? My God, my God, not a God, but my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Those are audacious words of a psalmist that Jesus owns on the cross. We have a God who knows what it means to be angry at sin, death, and oppression. To be mistreated and to be abused. And when we seek to hold on to our God, what we find is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer points to, is that only a suffering God can help us. Because he knows exactly the anger and the anguish that each and every one of us wrestles through and causes others. Look, sometimes anger is the right response, and there are going to be times where there isn't a satisfying answer. So as we roll through this unfriendly world, we can get angry and we can hold on to God and say, my God, aren't you better than this? But now we have something that Habakkuk didn't. As we wait, we can come with an utter confidence because of what Jesus has done, what God has done in Christ That our God is, in fact, better than this. When we look across the table, when we look across the nation, when we look across the world, our God is better than this, whatever this may be. And it frees us to be angry. And it enables us to sit in mystery. And it calls us to wait. Will we wait? Let's pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we pray. For yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory, forever and ever. Amen.